I'd like to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to join me in Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah's personal memoir, his accounting of the rebuilding of the walls at Jerusalem, and perhaps even greater than that, is his personal account of doing God's work, fulfilling God's calling on his life. What we're going to come to understand as we arrive and get into this chapter is that we are adding on to this reality. Anytime that we undertake a work to glorify God, we will encounter opposition. And the opposition that we will encounter will get tougher and tougher and tougher to handle. And I don't want to discourage you with that, but rather outline some biblical principles that will strengthen us as we seek to serve and honor the Lord in our lives. There's a book that's called All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. How many of you have ever heard of that book? All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Which means all of the effective principles for human interaction we actually learned when we were little. Things like this, share everything, play fair. Here's a good one. Don't hit people. That should still be applicable. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. This is good good life stuff right here. Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Huh? Live a balanced life. I love this one. Take a nap every afternoon. When you go out into the world, watch out for traffic. Hold hands and stick together. And maybe we could add this. Don't laugh at people. Wouldn't it be really great if the world, and I mean the whole world, actually took a nap every afternoon at 3 o'clock? My life would be better. I'm sure your life would be better. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all governments had a basic policy to just put things back where they found them and clean up their own mess? Wouldn't it really be wonderful if everybody in the whole world applied the principle of every time that we went out, we just held hands and stuck together? That everybody always got along. That never in our lives would we encounter opposition from another human being. Wouldn't that be nice? Yes, the resounding answer is that would be wonderful, but it won't happen. It never will happen. One thing that we learned in kindergarten that I have found is not true is sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's dumb because words hurt bad. And perhaps what hurts worse than someone who will gossip against you or slander about you or talk about you behind your back is if they will openly laugh at you in your face. I love what one writer on this passage penned. Some people who can stand bravely when they are shot at will collapse when they are laughed at. And as Nehemiah mentioned his enemies, and he named them for us, Sanballat and Tobiah. Back in chapter 2 and verse 10, as he introduced them, he is always coercing us to note their emotional state as much as he wants us to see their actions. 
And when he introduced us to the physical enemies, Sanballat and Tobiah, he said this of them. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant the Ammonite heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly. He's come to build the wall, and here are two people who it grieved them exceedingly. He's coercing us to note their emotional state, and then he says this, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel, and the reality as we conclude that chapter, he tells us, and they laughed us to scorn. They laughed at us for undertaking the work that God had given us to do. Now you might have a Sanballat or a Tobiah in your life, a physical manifestation of opposition as you try to glorify God. But without question, a principle from Scripture is this. You do have an adversary. And one of the oldest hymns that is still sung is, A mighty fortress is our God. Which means for hundreds and hundreds of years, this phrase has been sung. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. And as we read just six verses in chapter 4, what we are going to note is what was birthed in chapter 2, an exceedingly grieved spirit which lashed out in laughing is going to ramp up and heat up and the gloves are coming off. And what we will note is this, every single time that a believer, that a child of God seeks to take a step forward spiritually speaking, And they try to rebuild something that perhaps was broken down in their lives. And they set out on an endeavor to honor and glorify God and to pursue holiness. They will meet opposition. Look with me in verse 1. And if you don't have your Bible, you'll note the verses are here on the screen. And I think it's important for us to see it. But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall. Now note again, he's going to force us to see his emotional state. He was wroth. He was filled with rage and took great indignation. He was glowing red hot and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren, and I think this is a key phrase, indicating that things are going to ramp up, and the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now, Tobiah the Ammonite was by him. And he said, even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. And turn their reproach upon their own head, And give them for a prey in the land of captivity. And cover not their iniquity, and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee. For they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. So built we the wall. And all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof. For the people had a mind to work. Can you hear the scorn? Can you hear the derision and the sarcasm in those comments? Do you understand that Sanballat is always listed first and he was exceedingly grieved in chapter 2 that a man had showed up to finally rebuild the walls? It stands out that even here we are forced to note that he was wroth. We're forced to look that he had great indignation. Look at his emotional state. 
understand his emotional condition. And note that he is deriding and he's mocking and he's making fun of the efforts that have been undertaken to rebuild Jerusalem. And I at times wrestle with staying in the context because I'd like to sensationalize this battle. I'd like to make so much more of it perhaps than is even here. But this is a simple fact. If God gave this much real estate to force us to look at how Nehemiah endured being laughed at for doing the work of God in his life, we have to pause and study it for ourselves. And I think perhaps we would settle on this question. What do you expect? What do you expect? Of course they're going to oppose by ridicule. Even Jesus Christ, as he was speaking in John chapter 15, said this, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me, before it hated you, indicated in the language of that verse is this. If the world hate you, and it will, know this, take comfort in this, be strengthened by this, they hated me, the physical manifestation of God amongst men, before they hated you. As Jesus warned his disciples a chapter later, he said this, they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, The time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. Jesus, in encouraging, and what an encouragement this seems to be, his disciples to undertake gospel incorporated, he says, just understand that the day will come where you will lose all social standing. They will put you out of the synagogue. They will disallow you. They will excommunicate you. And then he even indicates that their lives are at risk because he said there will be those who seek to kill you and in doing so, they're going to believe they're doing right, they're doing good, that they are doing God's work. Now Jesus makes it very clear in Luke chapter 12 as he's speaking. He says, suppose you, do you suppose, do you think that I am come to give peace on earth? I tell you, nay, but rather division." For from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son and the son against the father and the mother against the daughter and the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. That one we can understand. But this is what Jesus is communicating. The truth is divisive. If you are going to adhere to the truth, you are going to find that you will be divided. You will be set at odds with, at times, even people in your own home. Even people in your own family. Even your loved ones. Just imagine that Jesus is saying, if the world hates you, and it will, take comfort in the fact that it hated me before you. And understand that you may lose some social standing. And it may even come to the place where they are hunting your life, but grasp that I came and the truth is divisive. You understand that Jesus throughout his life on earth was mocked. The religious leaders mocked Jesus incessantly. The chief priests mocked him, even smacking him in the face and in effect saying, tell us who hit you, prophet. We know that Herod mocked Jesus Christ. We know that they put a robe on his back and a crown of thorns on his head, mocking him as king. As Jesus hung on the cross, the soldiers at the foot of the cross even mocked him, 
the early church was ridiculed at Pentecost. Perhaps no greater message has ever been preached than that in Acts chapter 2. Perhaps there's never been a more spirit-filled response than 3,000 people coming to salvation as at the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. But do you know that the Bible teaches us that even in the midst of that, here's what Acts 2.13 says, others mocking said these men are full of new wine. Others who were onlookers laughed and mocked the crowd and said as they spoke in those international languages, they're nothing but drunks. In Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith, where there is an accounting given of individuals who stepped out on faith and God honors them by by wanting us to look at their lives. Here's what we read in Hebrews 11, 36. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. We are to expect hardship and trial. Paul wrote to the church at Galatia and he said, lest they should suffer persecution for the cause of Christ. Paul writing his letter to Timothy said, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The apostle Paul, even in the midst of effective ministry, of incredible ministry, he writes to those at Corinth, even unto this present hour, even now as I pen this letter to you, we hunger and thirst and are naked and buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer it, being defamed, we entreat, we are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. Why would we expect an easier path than anyone in Scripture? Why would we imagine that we might receive a different acceptance than the Son of God Himself? Why would we imagine that effective ministry removes opposition? We see it at Pentecost and we note it in the life of Paul. And here in Nehemiah chapter 4, for more than a hundred years... The inhabitants of Jerusalem have been content to dwell with broken down walls. They have grown acclimated to the reality that the outsiders defame the name of God. And it, it, it bears a reproach on the holiness of God because it is broken down. And now, a man moved by God steps out on an expedition of faith, incredibly provided for by God and protected by God, arrives on the scene to rebuild the walls. Nobody's bothered them. Nobody has messed with them. And less than a week after Nehemiah sails into town, adversity begins. An enemy arrives. The reviler, the slanderer, the hater of God, and the hater of God's people also arrives. A battle is clearly brewing. Conflict, his beginning. And whether Nehemiah knows it or not, the adversary, capital A, has moved his base of operations right outside the city of Jerusalem. And I refer again to how Nehemiah introduced us to Sanballat and Tobiah. Why would it grieve them exceedingly that someone has come to rebuild the walls? Why would it grieve them exceedingly that somebody cared about these poor, depressed inhabitants of Jerusalem? What has he done that would cause them to be filled with wrath and and great indignation? What has he done? What is it to them? Why do they care? 
And I think what we begin to note is this scriptural principle. And I say this somewhat sarcastically. It's almost as if the battle here isn't between flesh and blood. It's almost as if the battle that is engaged here is a battle between good and evil. And I'd say to you, it helps us to note who our real enemy is. For the scriptural principle is this, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And that does not mean high places of position. That means high places, spiritually speaking. And the Bible names our adversary for us. Peter writes, and I know you're familiar with it, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, your personal adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Any Christian who seeks to better their life, any Christian who strives to live a holy existence, any Christian who engages in the cause of Jesus Christ, any church that fulfills the commission of communicating the gospel to a lost world, anybody who stands out as light in the midst of a dark world, anybody who is literally different in the form of salt in a world that is corrupting, Anybody who is moving forward, spiritually speaking, will encounter opposition. And he's not bound by your habitation, and you're not going to move and get away from it. And it's not going to change as seasons of life change. He will relentlessly hound you like a roaring lion trying to devour you. And we grasp the beauty of Scripture when we read that the day will come where the Lord Jesus Christ will bind the dragon and cast him into the pit and put him under lock and key, and he will reign but until then what do you expect social acceptance what do you expect an easy road or do you apply the scriptural principles and steel your heart and your mind against this reality you're in a war and it's a tough road to walk but the mandate is do God's work what do we do then we'll look here in Nehemiah 4 and it's quite simple we'll just pray and persist We'll just pray, and we will just be persistent. How Nehemiah responds is quite amazing, because he doesn't argue. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't blister these guys who are going at him with an angry rebuttal. He simply responds by praying. I don't know about you, but I keep putting myself back in here, and I try to infuse the humanity back in Scripture. If I was Nehemiah, and I knew that I had Xerxes' behind me, if I knew that I had Persian military might, if I knew that I had been authorized to be there, I would have definitely defended myself. I would have articulated the strength that was behind me. I would have wanted to meet might for might. I would have wanted to meet word for word. I would have wanted to stand on top of the wall and thought to myself, I don't want these people behind me to question my leadership and my authority. I cannot let Sanballat and Tobiah just go at me like this. And then I think to myself, does it really hurt your feelings? When people stand out there and they begin to say things like was said here, what do these feeble Jews, who do you think you are? Do you really think You can rebuild this wall. 
Do you really imagine that after a hundred years, God's all of a sudden going to accept your offering and be on your side? Do you really think that all of this rubbish, which is here, you're going to find usable rocks to rebuild this wall, which was broken down? And then in my mind, I cannot help but see Tobiah step in. And it was this way early on. He is mentioned second. I have no doubt in my mind Tobiah is a beta. No questions asked. Because what he says here is ridiculous. Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, even they which build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their wall. And I'd like to think in that moment that Sanballat just said, hey, not for you. You let me do the talking. You just stay back. In effect, he's saying, even if a fox circles the top of the wall, a fox will knock their wall down. And the captains of the army of Samaria are there. And they're all laughing and they're ridiculing and they're mocking. And we simply note, without any interjection, we go from hearing what Sanballat and Tobiah are saying into Nehemiah's personal prayer room. And he just begins verse 4 by saying, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. It sounds exactly like Jesus in 1 Peter 2.23, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. That goes against our grain. They were being laughed at. They were being ridiculed. They were being questioned. And instead of defending himself, instead of vindicating himself, instead of validating himself, Instead of flexing on them with Persian might, instead of reminding them that he had the authority of the king, instead of shouting back at them, who do you think you are? He simply told the Lord about it. Do you remember Goliath out in the valley of Elah throwing the same question at David? Who do you think you are, David? Some little runt coming out here. You don't have any armor on. You don't have a weapon in your hand. And David's response was in effect this. This battle is not about weapons. This battle is not about armor. This battle is the Lord's. And the cause is greater than this between us. It is so that all the world might know. And we know the end of that story. But you can hear the ridicule. And you can hear the mocking. And as one preacher wrote, the world judges everything by size by headlines, by imposing plans and vast advertisement. It pours contempt upon the feeble little flock of the people of God. You people, with your feeble little prayer meetings. You with your silly little plan of converting people one at a time. You have no intellect. I can't fathom that you believe the scripture. You're out of date. You have no money. You have no status. You're a feeble little lot. Who do you think you are to go out and change this world? Who do you think you are that you are commissioned to come and tell us the truth? Who do you think you are to point a finger and say that without Christ, we are still dead in our trespasses and sins, but the scriptural principle is such That he has chosen the simple and he has chosen the foolish and he has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the wise. It's never been any different and it will never be different. They will question who are we? They will wonder why do we think we have a chance and they will even blaze up in anger as Sanballat and Tobiah did. They will mock the tall tasks ahead of you. They will mock your undertaking and our only effective response is is the pray. And may I say this, prayer is not passivity. 
Prayer is engaging in real battle. Real prayer engages in spiritual battle. It's rooted in the promises of God and in the covenant of his blood. And I'll tell you, I wish I could pray like Nehemiah, who went on and he said, turn their reproach on their own head and give them for a prey in the land of captivity. Cover not their iniquity. It might feel really good to pray. And God, judge them and burn them and don't let them ever find forgiveness. I don't know about you, but you might have it in your mind like I have on occasion. Like when I get to heaven, I hope there's a little hole that we can look down and see people that made fun of us burning in hell. And we can go, see, I told you that. The reality is, I want to interject this about Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah's prayer here is under the old covenant of the law. We should not pray that people don't find forgiveness. We should not exult in the fact that people will end up in hell. The old covenant here is based upon the law. To hate the city of Jerusalem was to hate God. To go against the work of God was to go against God Himself. And Nehemiah is dealing with that as he prays to God. He even says in verse 5 that they have provoked the God to anger before the builders. But nonetheless, I note this. Nehemiah says nothing to his mockers, but he says everything to his Lord. And he fully expected his Lord to take care of his mockers because vengeance belongs to God. He didn't retaliate, he did pray. And that seems so devotional. You mean this is a message about keeping on when people laugh at us? Yes. Because if God Himself took time in Scripture to give us in Nehemiah chapter 2 and six verses in Nehemiah chapter 4 to say, here's how to deal with mockery, then I know it is vital for us because here is something that is on our everyday agenda. Communicate the gospel. Tell people the truth. And you know what's hard to do? Go next door to your neighbor and make sure they know about Jesus and what's your thought as a full-grown adult. But they might think I'm crazy. What about going into the office and making sure that everybody in there perceives that you are pursuing a holy existence? Make sure that they know that you believe that the truth is so narrow that it's Jesus and only Jesus as a way of salvation and prepare to be ostracized for being that narrow-minded. And on the team with the other parents, make sure that they know that you're all about Jesus Christ and you're all about righteousness and that you stand by and adhere to the truth. Let all of these antiquated principles in their mind be your guiding light and understand that you will deal with mocking and derision and slander. That they will question your intellect and it could cost you social standing. Comprehend that at times it will put you at odds with people that you even respect and care about. And grasp this reality that is all beautiful in verse 6. These five words. So built we the wall. He just kept right on working. When we would have shouted back. When we would have tried to vindicate ourselves, when we would have tried to validate ourselves, perhaps worst case scenario, when we would have said, you know what, you're right. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know why I came 800 miles. I don't know why I undertook this massive task. I don't know how to build a wall. Has anyone stopped and realized we have jewelers and perfumers out here with us building a wall? 
Has anyone stopped to think this task is too big for us? This is ridiculous. Has anyone seen the army out there of Samaria gathering? Has anyone even asked Nehemiah if he's ever built a wall before? But the beauty of those five words is this. Sometimes the best way out is through. You just keep going. You just keep working. You just grab another stone and keep on building. Don't stop. Don't stop now. Don't stop ever. And that's hard to do. But you have a job to do today, and it's going to be there again tomorrow, and it's going to be there again Tuesday, and it's going to be there again Wednesday. And you know what? So is the opposer. So is the reviler. So is the adversary. So is your enemy. So is that great red dragon. Whatever scriptural name we want to heap on him, he will be there ceaselessly, and he's relentlessly evil, and he doesn't fight fair. And you will always encounter opposition. Just keep going. Don't stop ever. And you know, every one of the things that they brought up could be answered with God. Yeah, God will build a strong wall. And He can do it building that wall even with feeble people. Yes, God will fortify His people. Yes, He will be their defense. He will protect them. Yes, God will take His people back and He will accept their sacrifices. Yes, God will build this wall in record time so that He can show the whole world His involvement in the process. Yes, God will provide new wood necessary for the gates and He will preserve the stones that are down there in the rubbish. Just exactly what they need to complete the wall. Everything can be answered with God can and God will. Everything. And for whatever reason, this seems devotional. Keep going even when they mock. Keep going even when they question. But it's not in Nehemiah 2 and Nehemiah 4 because we don't face it. This is our everyday existence. And I say to you, rise up in persistence. God rewards faithfulness to the grind. God can and God will just keep working. One more day. One more hour. One more week. It would be wonderful if everybody applied the rules that we learned in kindergarten. It would be great if everybody was always nice and nobody ever laughed at anybody and everybody always got along. But it's not that way. And it never will be that way. And Scripture tells us to prepare ourselves for it. And it never gives us an out. We're just supposed to grab another stone and keep on building. Would you please bow your heads for just a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.